Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna. So you're currently looking to buy a house here in the great city of Los Angeles, is that correct? Yes. Um, well, I guess you can't afford a proper whole house, right? So you're looking to go in with a friend to buy a duplex together so you can each live in one unit, like a condo, right? Yeah. And what's your experience been with us? F- fucking nightmare, man. It's really hard, right? I It makes me feel... Like, I know, like, it's, like, capitalism or whatever, but it makes me feel some type of shame or, like, way because it's just, like, if you didn't have these student loans, your credit would be higher. If you would have paid this bill on time, like, you could have gotten this house, but you didn't pay it on time. And I was, like, well, I was broke because I was sick and I couldn't pay the bill. And it's really competitive, right? Oh, it's really competitive and you're competing with people who aren't even going to live in the house. Yeah, exactly. Like, the median house price in Los Angeles right now is $950,000. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's not exactly achievable, though. Yeah, we looked at a place that was, like, perfect duplex for us, went $500,000 over asking price, I think. The one that we looked at. Oh, yeah, I went with you. Yeah. Yeah, $500,000 over asking. That's, I guess, par for the course. That's what you expect, but it's horrible. Um. Yeah, and like obviously splitting that nine hundred and fifty thousand in half with a friend, if you get like a duplex because they're around the same price, that makes it a little better, right? It's like what four hundred seventy five thousand dollars each. Yeah. So that's a lot more achievable, but it's still rough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. It's like I. It's I couldn't even imagine finding like a single bedroom in Los Angeles for less than 475 right one of our friends just did it she's paid she paid four hundred and twenty-five thousand. but that was just a that was a unicorn that was random that was random that was totally random yeah well the average salary here in los angeles it's obviously higher than the country at large um the average salary in la is one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars per person per year really yeah it's pretty high well it makes to me is it average or like median that's the average i couldn't find the median for this yeah because to me it's like there's probably a ton of people making six figures and or a, seven figures seven, or eight figures yeah that's like there's a ton of people making like my experience living in la especially working retail is people are really rich or really poor yeah we don't have much of a middle class no like i was always on the on the, the broker end the broke side same <laughs> even now we both um we make lower middle class wages in la and it's nowhere near one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a year yeah yeah i only know like two people i think who make over a hundred thousand dollars here in la like personally so apparently that means that like everyone i hang out with is just broke Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's really like people get really like some type of way about talking about income and like what you pay for rent and like stuff like that. And I've started in my life, I've started talking about it more because I feel like if we all know what we make, maybe our jobs, we would be like, whoa, my job is underpaying me. Yeah, for sure. I've always believed in radical transparency about money. Definitely. Um. Yeah, but, like, if you if you look at, like, the income to housing prices here in L.A., again, I couldn't find, like, the median income for this year, but the median house price compared to the average income, it's eight times the price of the average annual income here to get a house. Yeah, I, uh, my friends in Colorado are experiencing that, too. Right, and in the rest of the country, it's 
it's not as bad as it is here, but it's still pretty bad. So like in the US at large, the average salary is $63,000 per year and a median house is $392,000, which for my, my house was $400,000 here in LA. So it's almost the same as it would be for the median house in the rest of the country. And we're considered a high cost of living area. But you see that, you know, in the US in general, a house is roughly six times the price of the average salary versus LA it being eight times. So it's 25% harder here on average, but still something that we definitely see people in the US dealing with on the whole. Yeah, I, I think that almost all of my friends, their lives have been deeply touched in some way by unaffordable housing, whether it's like in Portland when things started getting really high when I moved there, so many people I knew had to move or they, they had to make big life decisions like, oh, I li- I've lived in this place for 10 years. My rent's gone up $1,000 a month. Wow. Like, because uh, Portland doesn't, didn't have rent control. I don't know right. if they do now. But like people in Denver experience, like people just everywhere, like experiencing like, I mean, I experienced that when I first moved to LA and I lived in Hollywood. Right. Interesting. Not the place you live now. No, I lived in Hollywood. Oh, okay. Even more West. (laughs) Yeah. I lived in like, like, like I would walk up and get my morning coffee and not far away would be like the Hollywood stars. Like it was like, it was Hollywood, Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, obviously we have a housing crisis here in the United States and one of the things I thought was really interesting is because I am extremely like radically transparent with money. I uh, talk about my income and my housing expenses on the internet all the time. And one of the things I talk about is how I own a house. Um, I own half of a house, like what you're trying to do, right? A uh, detached duplex. Detached duplex. My friend and I went in together. We bought a plot of land with two houses on it. My share, my house that I split with my boyfriend, uh, $400,000. And our mortgage together, me and my boyfriend, not including my other friend, just me and my boyfriend for our little place is uh, $2,500 a month. Oh my God. But it's three bedrooms, two bath. And I said this on the internet and somebody commented something like, oh, not me living in Ohio, paying that much for a two bedroom apartment. And they were like shocked. And a lot of other people were like, that's about, that's like the housing prices where I live. And then in another video where I talked about the average rent in LA right now, or I think I mentioned one of my friends just rented a one bedroom apartment for 1500 a month. Same thing. People in the comments were like, why did I always think LA was so much more expensive? Like I literally live in Kentucky and a one bedroom apartment here is $1,300. That's so, yeah, I, um, live in a one bedroom and I have, but because I've lived there for so long with rent control and prices didn't go up during COVID, I pay around 1400, which is amazing for LA. It's amazing for LA. It's like, but you, there are some things that make it fourteen hundred dollars. It's yeah. <laughs> you know why. <laughs> it's cool though. It's cute. I mean, yeah, but I think that's really interesting. I feel like the rest of the United States is catching up in terms of cost of living with the United States. Um, I mean, that's why I moved here from Portland because I knew because at the time, it's so funny in like twenty, you know, twenty fifteen or whatever. I thought it was. It, to me, like Portland was getting so expensive because it was seven hundred dollars for a room in a house. Where in LA, I, I knew someone who had $700 for a room and a house. So I was right. like, why don't I move to LA? I would make more money. Yeah, I think when I first started looking for studio apartments in LA over a decade ago, it was $800 for a studio apartment. When I, this is, this betrays my age, but when I was looking at studio apartments in Denver um, in the early 2000s, like when I went there for college, like 2005, 
$400 a month. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that tracks because when I got my first apartment in like 2003 or 2004, somewhere in there, I paid $300 a month for a room in a house in California um, and like a cool part of town. And yeah. my room was 300. That, that's only like 22 years ago. Yeah. Wow. 22 years ago. It's a long time. That's like, but to me, it's like in 22 years, it going up that much. Like a thousand dollars. Like I know people who pay 1300 sometimes for rooms and houses now. Oh, I for sure know people who pay $1,300 for a room in a house. Yeah. So whatever the case, we've got the housing crisis. It's happening here. It's happening everywhere in the United States and it's fueled by a few things. Um, so how you were talking about like apartment or house hunting, not apartment hunting, like looking to buy and how you're going up against people who aren't even going to live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have corporate landlordship increasing more than ever now, meaning that if you just as an average person want to buy a house, you're going up against a lot more corporations who want to buy that house too. And not to mention people who read rich dad, poor dad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and all of these people, they profit if they keep you a renter, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. And in 2021, there was an 80% increase in corporations buying single family homes. And secondly, on top of that, as the real value of wages for workers decreases in the U.S., we find a shortage of low cost homes to house them. So in 2017, middle wage workers' wages had gone up 0.4% per year since 1979, and inflation is obviously 10 times that. Add in the rising costs of education and healthcare, and we see that the U.S. has a demand not just for housing, but for affordable housing that, like, the average worker can actually live in. And in 2018, the U.S. had a shortage of nearly 7 million affordable homes uh, from both a renting and purchasing perspective. That same year, there was not a single state or county where someone working full-time at minimum wage could afford a two-bedroom apartment. And in 2019, nearly half of all renter households were cost-burdened, which we've talked about before. It means that you just spend more than 30% of your income on rent. And um, if I remember correctly, that cracks us both up because I feel like my housing costs are the cheapest they've ever been in my life, and it's still above 30% of my income. Yeah, I think technically mine is above 30% as well. And it's considered very cheap rent. And it's considered extremely cheap rent. Right. So that same year, 2019, 39% of Americans said the availability of affordable housing was a major issue in their communities. And now, just four years later, that figures up to half. Wow. So we see this being something that's like increasing in real time around us. And some housing advocates say we have enough housing, we just need to impose limitations on what it can be used for and curb corporate landlordship and uh, curb like vacant units because that's kind of a thing that investors will do. They'll leave vacant units around either to take them like as a loss for their taxes or because if cities have really stringent rent control laws, they'd rather like wait for a really high ticket renter to come in because they know if they're there for 10 years, they're hedging their bets that if they get someone in at a higher rent over 10 years time, it's going to be more advantageous than lowering the rent and getting someone else in there who might be subject to rent control and just sit in the unit forever at paying a low rate, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw this in my building. Um, whenever people moved out, uh, like uh, units would stay vacant for years. There's still units that have been vacant for years. Just waiting for a high dollar waiting, tenant to like, come in. Waiting for a high dollar tenant to come in because the rent control. Right. Which is really interesting because rent control, you think about it and it's like, oh, this is such a good thing, but it also has sometimes this like double edged sword effect, which I find is what happens when you try to, when you try to like, um, 
put a band-aid on the ill effects of capitalism like you're not stopping the issue like you need yeah. to get to the root issue which is just like housing is a human right and everybody should have free housing yeah well it's just like yeah it it weirdly can create a housing shortage because when the, those units come off the market, they just stay off the market for a way longer time. Until somebody with more money than you comes in and can afford to rent them. Yeah, and the thing is, is like these units in, in my building are so high, but the qual- like the quality of the building is not as high as you would think would be, you know, you don't want to pay $3,000 for a crummy studio. Right, or three, exactly. You know, I don't know what the prices were, but it seemed like it was something that was that ridiculously high. Yeah, and they just do the landlord special where they paint over everything with white paint, and it doesn't even look that great. So we have 16 million vacant homes in the U.S. currently, uh, which does include unoccupied secondary homes like vacation rentals, abandoned or foreclosed homes, seasonal investment properties, and empty homes that are for sale. Um, And we have a little over half a million unhoused people in the U.S. So compared to those 16 million vacant homes, yeah, there are more than enough houses for unhoused people here. In Los Angeles County alone where we are, there are 70,000 unhoused people. And the city of Los Angeles alone, not the county, that was in the county, just in our city, we have over 100,000 vacant units, nearly half of which are not on the housing market at all. And they're only used as second homes or investment properties. Hmm. Yeah. But then you have these other housing advocates who are like, no, we need to build more affordable housing in general and talking about these empty houses distracts from the real problem. Um, However, this whole thing about just building more affordable housing in general, that doesn't seem to be going so well. In Highland Park, which is a neighborhood here in LA, the city created what they call the Tiny Home Village, which is a 6.8 acre site providing 117 housing units and 224 beds as transitional housing for the unhoused here in LA. Not permanent housing, mind you. And these cost $55,000 each to build. What the fuck? You can buy like container houses, like full container houses. For that much. Yeah. And the city, of course, patted itself on the back for being so cost effective. Oh, God. However, these tiny houses, they're smaller than jail cells and they have no private bathrooms and they look nearly identical to a shed I found on the Home Depot website for $500. What the fuck, yeah, dude? But they just added a $100 window AC unit like crammed in there. And, and oh, I'm like, why? Okay. I think this is like. Sometimes when you're like, what the fuck? The government is like so bad at this. And then it overlaps with like the libertarian people who are just like, see, the government does a bad job. And you're like, ah! Well, no, it's because of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it's like not the same thing. So they managed to spend $55,000 on these $600 basically Home Depot sheds. But the reason why is that like I've known people who work um, in like home construction type things that are contracted by like the government and what happens is the same thing that happens like with the um military industrial complex it's that when your friends run these companies your friends will overcharge the city for all of these services and it's seen as like a you scratch my back i scratch yours we give you the contract and then you know you get to upcharge it a little more so we end up paying the city the government pays these inflated prices to these private companies because of capitalism because the private companies know they can extort the city basically yeah and it's funny because people think in america they're like america you know it's not like other countries in other countries they bribe it's so there's so much corruption they bribe officials and i'm like that's exactly what happens here but it's like it's not overt it's just like oh well you know it's like uh you know oh this pipe costs 
$500 a yard. <laughs> right, exactly. When it's actually like $5, you know? Yeah, so whatever. We spent $55,000 on each of these transitional houses, not even permanent housing. And I also just looked on Craigslist and found several studio apartments in central Los Angeles for rent for $1,000 a month and some as low as 800 still. So you could literally house someone permanently in their own apartment for four and a half years for the same price if you just paid their rent. It's so, uh, it drives me so uh, bonkers. Like just being like, because I'm just like all the, all the problems, like if we just gave people healthcare, if we gave people houses from a, even a conservative standpoint, it saves you money. It saves so much money. And this doesn't even take into account the fact that it costs the city an additional, get ready for this one, $2,663 per person per month just to operate these facilities which just shows how out of touch the city truly is because my guys, that is more than rent just to operate it. Like that is more than me and my boyfriend's combined mortgage payments for that three bedroom, two bath house we own in central Los Angeles. Yeah, it's like you could literally just pay everybody's rent and it would be cheaper. It would be cheaper. It's so wild. Um, Yeah, so even if our cities are inept at figuring out how to do it, the talking points are still there. And it seems like people today are searching for a low-cost way to address the ever-rising prices of housing. And that brings us eventually to today's episode topic, which is prefab homes. Oh, okay, we got there. We got there. It was kind of a long and winding intro to get us here, but I really wanted to set up kind of the environment that prefab homes come from and what they're hoping to achieve and kind of the relevance they have in society. Hmm. Yeah, so, and it's also just kind of like how my brain operates. I think a lot of people when searching for affordable housing solutions have found themselves on this exact same journey that I did earlier in my life. Weighing out the potential realities of renting versus owning on their incomes, finding the price of existing homes exorbitant, wondering why, uh, what exactly it would take for them to just buy a plot of land somewhere and putting a shipping container on it. And if this were happening in any other country, we might call these shanty towns or dystopian nightmares. But since it's the US, we've managed to brand it as another version of the American dream. You too can live in an old metal box in the middle of nowhere without any access to resources or steady employment if only you dream hard enough. Well, yeah. I mean, I know people who are just like, fuck it. I'm just going to buy property in the desert and build my own house on it. I have a friend who's doing that right now. And then they're like, oh, and then they changed the rules. So now I can't get water to the house. (laughs) Yes. I mean, (laughs) I myself have had this dream. Before buying my own home, I spent months researching things on the internet, putting together spreadsheets about land prices and septic tanks and shipping containers, and even looking up housing kits on Alibaba. Um, In case you're wondering, you can buy a flat pack prefab tiny house on Alibaba for as little as $450, and they are 322 square feet and come complete with a bathroom and folding bed and look a lot nicer than the LA City tiny home sheds. Oh my God, they got to get on Alibaba. (laughs) The history of trying to find out the most affordable way to build the most expensive asset most of us will ever need is super interesting, and it leads everybody, I think, inevitably to the the end point of prefab housing. So, Kenna, what do you know about prefab homes? Um, I think, well, I grew up in a, like, a rural town, so you do see a lot of prefab homes um, that are built, like, kind of, like, maybe on the outskirts of town that are, like, they're not quite they're not like trailers but they're kind of like when I imagine like in school if you ever had the like rooms that were built outside of like the school like as an afterthought 
Oh, those ours were literally just trailers. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We had we basically had prefab homes as oh. as the like what are the auxiliary buildings or yeah. whatever in the parking lots? Yeah, in the parking lot. Yeah, there'd be like just like a weird house in the parking lot. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, small town living, but ours were on wheels and everything, like actual trailers really? with, with a hitch still on on wheels, and they just sat upstairs in front, and you'd walk up to class in them. I'm so surprised they didn't do that at our school. Maybe they were movable. Maybe they were, um, but to me, a prefab home was like. A little nicer than, like, if you lived in, like, a mobile home. Got it. Yeah, so there are lots of different words to describe them, but at their core, prefab houses, right? It's just short for prefabricated houses, and it basically just means as much of the house is built off-site as possible, then brought to the housing site, and then just kind of plopped up. And it actually does, um, some definitions include mobile homes as well because mm. of the history of them, which we'll get into. It's supposed to bring the efficiencies of the factory to the complexity of home building, and it's supposed to save you a lot of money in the process. And there are all different types of prefab houses. Some are manufactured homes, which we often see in trailer parks. I had a lot of friends who lived in those growing up. There are also modular homes, which are similar, but are built to like local and state codes rather than the HUD codes, which manufactured houses use. And the reality is there's like a huge range of what exactly a prefab house can be. Some of them look like ultra sleek modern mansions that celebrities would live in. And others look like, yeah, simple single wide parked in a spot at a trailer park. So the history of prefab homes is pretty interesting and it kind of starts with Sears. Oh, <laughs> Kenna, so you know all about Sears, right? Yeah, there's actually, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the podcast that went into the history of Sears and the Sears catalog. Yeah, well, this is kind of based on that. It's super interesting. So Sears was obviously a department store founded in 1893, and it was kind of famous for home appliances and like tools when I was growing up. Before that, though, Sears was also famous for its mail order catalog. Yeah, basically, like it was a uh, proto Amazon, like you could get everything in the Sears catalog. Exactly. So they started printing these things in 1894 and they were huge, like 322 pages, fully illustrated. And they were illustrated so they could appeal to people with minimal literacy skills. Yeah. Um, the, if you find the old ones, they're really cool. Like you can just look through them forever. Yeah. And they have a lot of them online. Like people have like retained them like in PDF oh, sure. form. Yeah. When I worked at the vintage store, we always sold the old Sears catalogs. Oh, like for so some cool. reason they always flew out the door i think i would buy one if i saw one in a vintage store i mean like i remember have like seeing the ones my dad kept some as a kid and going through them like being very small and being like "Ooh, what's this thing that's cool yeah these mail order catalogs actually became like famous amongst marginalized communities because it allowed people of color a shopping experience where they didn't have to be harassed for leaving their house or like price gouged in local irl department stores by white owners so one article in the Chicago Tribune says Sears catalogs revolutionized rural black Southerner shopping patterns in the late 19th century. Whether they meant to or not, the Sears catalog was subversive. It allowed rural black Southerners to bypass the white owned general stores where they were subjected to all sorts of horrible discrimination. And there wasn't any fancy way of ordering either. You could literally write down on a piece of paper all a piece of paper overall size large and send your money. And then lo and behold, the overalls would come shortly along in the mail. It was anonymous and simple and it made everything seem relatively accessible. Like you didn't even have to write or spell the words correctly and they would process your order. 
Some people say these catalogs even helped create a whole genre of black Southern music, the Delta Blues, by providing cheap, readily available steel string guitars to purchase via mail order for just $1.89, or the equivalent of 50 bucks today. Whoa. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate about whether this was intentional or not, but whatever way you look at it, the owners of Sears at the time knew that they were doing something that was really meaningful in black communities and in low-income communities of any kind. And some of the founders like donated, there were two founders and one of them donated like millions of dollars to like help end discrimination against black people in the South. Oh, whoa. Mail order catalogs like grew in popularity all throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s. And by 1906, this different company called Aladdin started using them to sell something else, housing kits. Oh. Yeah. And this is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a whole house that comes in a kit ready for you to build. And there were some earlier versions of prefabricated houses coming out of England, like as early as the 1600s, but they didn't really take off and they didn't have the kinks fully worked out like Aladdin did. So in 1906, brothers Otto and William Sovereign started the Aladdin company in Michigan. And this company lasted for decades, like throughout the 1980s. They produced these cool little catalogs advertising what they called knockdown houses, simple structures, and the catalogs boasted that no experience or mechanical skill was needed to put together Aladdin knockdown houses. No tool but a hammer. Whoa. I, uh, I, knowing my skills, though, I would somehow knock it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were inspired by the similar trend that had been happening with boats, and they wanted to expand on this idea. So you can still find a lot of these catalogs on the internet, and they're honestly pretty cool. The first page of a 1908 catalog reads, don't hesitate to send for an Aladdin house because you fear it is difficult to put up. There is no backbreaking, muscle racking, sawing, measuring, figuring, or fitting to do. We do all of that in our mill. Your work is driving nails. Oh, okay. So maybe you could be convinced. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know. They haven't, they haven't met me yet. <laughs> There were just a few designs. There was the summer cottage, which was just like a simple rectangle design, usually with a living room, two bedrooms, a dining room, and a kitchen, plus a front porch. And that totaled 480 to 576 square feet, depending on the layout you chose. And it ranged in price from $98 to $247, which in today's money is between 3000 to 7600 Oh, whoa. Yeah. That's not bad. Not bad. There was the dwelling house, which had a living room, dining room, kitchen, bathroom, pantry, and two bedrooms plus a porch, all for $492, which in today's money is $15,172.64. Mm. And there was also a boat house for between $52 and $169, or a garage for your car from between $89 to $275. And eventually by 1908, the Sears catalogs everyone had come to love started selling these Aladdin style house kits too. Unlike the simplicity of the Aladdin kit homes though, the Sears housing kits were beautiful and elaborate and they put the LA tiny homes for the unhoused to shame. They averaged $725 for materials and building plans. And it was a two story, six room house with a parlor, bedroom, kitchen, pantry, two bedrooms, large attic, and lots of closets, as well as a front porch. The interior living space was 672 square feet, square feet per floor, which totaled 1,344 square feet for the total home. Pretty big, bigger than my house. Whoa. And now obviously $725 in 1908 isn't the same as it would be today. In today's money, that would work out to $22,358.05, or half of how much the shed cost for the LA unhoused community. Oh my God. 
Uh, and you have to admit though, in today's dollars, that's still a great deal. And uh, that wasn't even their cheapest model. The Notoma model, which was their cheapest, I think, was a small one bedroom house for $191, which was just around 5,500 bucks in today's money. Whoa. Yeah. And these Sears kit houses were called the American dream in a box. They started with an order form, then blueprints followed, and eventually the kits themselves. You could even make slight changes to the layouts if you wanted, and like architects would make the changes on the plans as long as they weren't too dramatic. Whoa. These kits had tens of thousands of pieces, and they were delivered in stages to the railroad station nearest your building site. They had everything. They had all the nails, all the hardware, windows, doors, flooring, you name it. Everything except for the foundation, which you had to pour yourself. So it was like Ikea, but for houses and 50 years earlier. You could build it yourself with your friends and family in as little as 90 days. And these things were really popular. The Sears archives document at least 70,000 homes were shipped out, but records were only kept until the 1940s. And some researchers say the total number of houses could be well over 100,000. And while Sears barely exists anymore as a store today, the Sears kit houses from the early 1900s are still standing strong all across the United States. Experts estimate that around 70% of them are still intact. And some people live in them proudly, knowing their history and sharing information about their homes on websites dedicated to keeping the memory of the Sears kit house alive. Other people, though, might have no idea that what they're living in is actually a kit home. So my house in particular was built around 1912, and many contractors who've been inside it have speculated that it could have been an early kit house due to its simple construction and vertical plank wall design, which was super uncommon. I have the original documentation and permits from the city at the time of its construction, but of course they don't say anything about how the house was built. However, when I looked online, the layout is suspiciously similar to the Aladdin Parkway model plan five. Whoa, yeah. mystery solved, well kind of solved. Yeah, people are always wondering about my house because it's so weird and the walls are so strange and the city is like, it shouldn't even exist, how does it exist? But I'm beginning to suspect that both of the uh, houses on our property, since we have the detached duplex, are both kit houses. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I really think they are. Um, but of course, you know, it's been a hundred years, over a hundred years, and they've weathered like earthquakes and storms, everything you can think of that should destroy a house. Our houses are still standing. And the city, even though they can obviously see that, is making us change all the walls to be proper walls in adherence with current code. <laughs> Because they think it would fall down in an earthquake. But I'm oh like, it God. survived every earthquake. It's but make really them, strong. But make them live in the tiny ho the tiny sheds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, by the 1910s, around when my house was built, kit houses were taking off. In 1911, Sears started offering mortgages to their customers who were interested in purchasing a kit house. The mortgage program made it easy for, like, anyone to buy a house and helped many people buy and build their own homes who previously would not have been able to afford them, and also helped kit houses rise in popularity even further. So then, by 1913, technology kind of saw the development of the assembly line. Mm. So kind of, you can describe the assembly line, right? Yeah, it's like you got all the the tools and you're in a factory and people do just one thing like there's one person putting in the the uh the bottoms of the chairs the other person is putting in the stool or you know the seat of the chair and so forth yeah exactly it sounds like a repetitive motion injury nightmare to me yes basically it's a repetitive motion injury nightmare machine yeah yeah but it's really efficient <laughs> yeah it's like uh oh in like economics class they're like 
the uh, like it's in in the industrial revolution instead of making one artisan making everything on their own now you have someone only doing one part of the item yeah even though I know it would probably be like really bad for my body as a worker there is something that seems kind of freeing about just like hammering up and down in the same place all day like no thoughts no brain just hammer you know I feel like I've worked jobs like that and if I have something to listen to it's like I'm it's fine yeah so they started doing this like whole assembly line thing for like everything and that included housing kits which just made them even more efficient wow yeah by 1916 the Sears kit houses had become so fine-tuned that every piece was pre-cut and pre-fitted and ads boasted no use for a saw here and these houses weren't simple either, like I mentioned. As time went on, they added breakfast nooks, um, built-in cabinetry, medicine chests, and drop-down ironing boards. They had hardwood floors and elegant doors and graceful staircases. They had that look of like the beautiful craftsman home you think of when you imagine like a vintage house. And they didn't stop with houses either. They also added in other buildings. Like there was this one ad where you could get a kit for an entire schoolhouse with like four floors. Whoa. At its peak, Sears had 447 different styles of buildings you could choose from. Whoa. Yeah. And Aladdin Company prefab houses, they were rising in popularity too. You can find this letter online that this man wrote to Aladdin in 1949 saying, Dear Sirs, you will remember me back in 1915 when I bought your Georgia number no. two and nestled it in the hillside where it sparkles like a jewel in the sunshine today. <laughs> We've been very happy in the past 33 years in our Aladdin home and we are always proud to tell our friends where we got it. Now we have three grown-up children and five grandchildren to share our beautiful home whenever they care to visit us. And it's signed F.A. Billings, Claremont, New Hampshire, 1949. Aw, cute. So people liked them. And these houses at the time were 40% cheaper than traditional building. Wow. So major savings. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright even worked on simple designs around the same time period, creating the American System Built Homes, or ASB, which had ready-cut parts, but nothing was truly constructed off-site in these homes like a traditional prefab house would. However, this builder guy, Arthur L. Richards, agreed to partner with Wright to help kind of build them. And the original six ASB homes built in Milwaukee by the Arthur Richards Company, they were added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1985. Located along West Burnham Street, it's the only known grouping of system-built homes and the only grouping Frank Lloyd Wright homes that includes both duplexes and single-family dwellings. Oh. Yeah. So this was just him kind of toying around with the idea. So by the 1920s, companies like Buckminster Fuller had started experimenting with new ways to build prefabricated houses, and they'd come up with something more akin to modular design as we think of it today, with this thing called the Dymaxian house. Ooh. Yeah, right? They had created prefabricated bathroom modules, too, that they ended up patenting that you could just add to existing bathrooms because mm. indoor plumbing was still relatively new. Mm. So, Kenna, I know we hear a lot about modular design, but, like, do you know what it actually is? Like, what does it mean? Uh, I think I'm a little, I'm a, in my mind, it's like uh, Ikea. Yeah, it's kind of like Ikea. So it's just designing things in small modules, like one module at a time, with the understanding that the different modules can then be fitted together later in different combinations. And each small part is created individually, and it can also be replaced individually without compromising the entire system on the whole. So let's say you have a modular house and two rooms catch fire. Well, what if you could just click out those damaged rooms and replace them with whole new rooms without having to deal with the rest of the house at all? That's cool kind of cool it's um you know a pretty modern idea to come out of the 1920s 
And this house, this Buckminster Fuller Dymaxion house, well, it was like the epitome of this. Have you ever heard about this house? No. I haven't either, but it's really kind of cool to me. It was designed in the 1920s, and they actually managed to build one in 1945. But Fuller designed it to be a solution to the need for a mass-produced, affordable, easily transportable, and environmentally efficient house. The name Dymaxion combined the words dynamic, maximum, and tension, which related to how the house was built. So basically you had this tension suspension from a central kind of like column and the column could be shipped anywhere in the world. It came in its own metal tube. And then the heating and cooling was all done by natural methods and the house made its own power. It was also earthquake and storm proof and needed no painting, no re-roofing, no other maintenance. You could easily change the floor plans inside too, which all suspended from that kind of central column. And the house was designed to cost around $40,000 in today's money, or the same price as a Cadillac at the time, and be paid off in five years like a car. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And Frank Lloyd Wright, also in the 20s, was still experimenting. See, before his American system-built homes, they weren't actually prefabricated. He was just playing around with the idea of automation and home design. But in the 1920s, he put in more effort, and he came up with a system that used um, like block designs out of cement, where he cast three-inch thick concrete blocks in molds held together with these visible mortar joints. And then also in the 1920s, in 1926, we saw the advent of the mobile home as we think of it today. So mobile homes had always kind of existed in the U.S. since the 1870s, but they were more just like a normal house built, like one example in North Carolina was just like a house built on beachfront property, but they were like, oh, it's mobile. Cause if you get a bunch of horses, you can move it. <laughs> yeah, real weird. <laughs> so I feel like with enough horses, you can probably move anything. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, well, if you had enough horses or anything, uh, even enough people, you could move a house. Yeah. But by 1926, people could start to use cars to pull these new actual mobile homes around. They were like trailer coaches. And they became popular to use during camping trips. So they were marketed more like being recreational vehicles. And they've been growing in popularity since the first one debuted in 1910. And by the 1920s, the New York Times predicted that half of all automobiles would be used for camping, which was a popular way for middle class people to escape what they considered like the grime of the city. And people had started to build their own one-of-a-kind trailer homes from wrecked cars and cargo trucks that they could tow with their cars. So there was this demand for a product in the marketplace that was an affordable alternative to just building a weird kind of house on wheels yourself. And in 1928, Arthur G. Sherman, who was a bacteriologist who just had a bad camping trip, started building his own solid body campers called the Covered Wagon, Mm. which might not seem like a prefab house, but it was just like a metal home that you could dwell in that was built all inside of a factory that then was delivered to you in the late 1920s though the great depression hit which kind of put a stop to the growth of prefabricated housing and recreational vehicles all of those mortgages sears had given out when times were good they started foreclosing on people's kit homes because they couldn't afford to pay the mortgages back and it was horrible pr for the company and people just didn't have a lot of money to build their own house of any kind even if it was the same cost as a cadillac Around this time, though, the Ford Model A house car emerged, and this was like peak Great Depression era, right? And it was seen as a solution for people who couldn't keep both their house and their car due to financial issues. So the top of the house car was made of a roll-up canvas, which afforded more headspace when needed, and the tiny interior also held a kitchen, a stove, a dining area, and a bed, which it kind of makes me think of like the uh, Westphalia 
Or like a, when people like kit out their sprinter vans. Or yeah, something. yeah. Or like a van again, you know, something like that that came off the market like it. Uh, Ford only made two of the Model A house cars, one in 1928 and one in 1936. But they still have the 1928 model. They have one of them at like an old auto museum that you can look at. Whoa. So, you know, the Depression hits in the late 1920s into the early 1930s. And as this is kind of going on, uh, these solid-bodied campers grew in popularity. And if you've ever been broke, it's easy to see why, right? You're watching the economy crumble around you, and then you see these portable camper homes, and you're like, I could live in that, right? It was like van life, but in the year 1930. And in 1931, the covered wagon company made by that bacteriologist, they sold 117 campers Whoa. in a down year, right? They were getting more popular since many people had, yes, just lost their houses and cars during this time. And campers allowed people to have one place that was both car and home, cutting expenses dramatically. It also allowed poor families to travel the country looking for work. So in that way, fabricated mobile homes were an essential tool of survival for many poor and working class people during the Depression. Eventually, though, the economy started to rebound around 1933, and that's when we saw kind of a renewed interest in prefabrication for more traditional stable housing. The first successfully constructed modular home system actually came that year in 1933 with the Winslow Ames House by Robert M. McLaughlin and the company American House Incorporated, which that name just kills me because it's like so capitalism. It's capitalism on its capitalism. <laughs> house company. Yes, housing, a human right, incorporated in the good old USA. <gasps> Wild. But this Winslow Ames house used a new exterior finish. <laughs> this name, I'm so sorry. It's very funny to me. It's called Semesto. It sounds like um, a pharmaceutical drug. For a, a drug that they would like advertise on TV where people are running through a field. Yeah, semesto. Um, and as you can imagine, it's part cement. It's like one letter off from being cemento. I think that's why it's so funny to me. Like, this is the best you guys came up with. Oh, advertising in the 1950s or whatever. Oh, yeah, we're in the 30s now. 30s. Not even the golden age. Uh, in the 1950s, yeah. they might have come up with something even better. But it was basically like this panel board made out of like cement and maybe like sugar cane. And it just kind of looked like the inside of a dentist's office. Oh. Yeah. But this house, it had several rooms all made with these semesto panels. And each room was their own module. And then they were connected by a service core that had like a bathroom, kitchen, plumbing, and heating systems all running through it. And they were all manufactured off-site and then taken to a place and assembled there. So this was the first time we kind of saw a, a modular house being built. And I think it was ugly, but it was ugly in an interesting kind of way. You know? <laughs> ugly cute. Yeah, ugly cute. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, the U.S. government saw it and they were like, how can we use that for evil? Uh, and they did. They used it for the most evil. So in 1942, the U.S. was in the middle of World War II. And the U.S. government commissioned a prefabricated home system to be built basically overnight in the town of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, for the Manhattan Project. Oh. Yeah, so kind of, you know what the Manhattan Project was? Yeah, to build the atomic bomb. Right, right, right. It was like ultimate destructo horrific thing. And it was the code name for the U.S.'s efforts to, to develop atomic weaponry from 1942 to 1945. And all of that happened in this place, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So the town was conceptualized and built by Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill based off of the idea of a flexible space, fully modular home, flexible enough to be used in a variety of different ways for a variety of different families. 
These houses came into discrete sections, cast in semesto, and were assembled on site with slight variations so they didn't look totally cookie cutter. The military space itself housed 13,000 people in prefabricated houses and trailers, but eventually grew to 75,000 people in total. Town planners had only planned for 30,000 people, and even prefab housing like struggled to keep up with the surge. The prefab houses were known as alphabet houses because each was designated with a letter of the alphabet. So you could have like a small two bedroom A house, or you could have a C house with more bedrooms or a D house with a dining room and so on. So there was a total of 3000 semesto homes put up in this place. And later thousands of prefabricated houses were sent to Oak Ridge in sections complete with walls, floors, room partitions, plumbing, and wiring. Workers turned over 30 to 40 houses to occupants every day. Military sites were starting to pop up all over the US during the war. And in 1943, there were more than 43,000 people working at the Willow Run Bomber Plant. Around half of them lived in mobile homes or trailers. And the average trailer at the time was eight feet wide and 20 feet long with enough room to sleep several people, but no bathroom. And in total during World War II, the US government bought 500,000 trailers, mobile homes and RVs to provide housing to the military where the prefab homes had kind of failed to keep up. But it's important to note that lots of people consider these trailers and mobile homes and RVs to be a form of prefab housing because people were living in them full time and they were built in a factory off site. By 1945, World War II was over, but that meant a lot of soldiers were returning home from the war and housing was cramped. Mobile homes became increasingly popular as an effort to return people like back to the United States brought about a new housing shortage. By 1948, 7% of the US population was living in a trailer house or a mobile home full-time. And people began to shift their focus to permanent full-time housing solutions in the trailer and mobile home sector. Additionally, the mobile homes the government had bought during the war, those 500,000, they were now being relocated to house military members who had been promised free college for enlisting. So they set up mobile home parks all around uh, major colleges just for this purpose. Whoa. Yeah. This leads to an interesting brief period uh, that would follow in the 1950s where trailer parks actually became synonymous with upward mobility because they were associated with a college education for many people. So there was this like one year in particular where living in a trailer home meant that your like net worth or like value was higher than people who lived in regular homes. Whoa. Yeah. And even Elvis did movies at this time living in trailer parks because they were kind of like glamorous. Interesting. Right? But to deal with these shortages um, in housing from like the post-war 1940s and 1950s, prefabricated houses, they really became like a kind of guiding light on the horizon. And people wanted to move away from the idea of them being like fully mobile and just build something that had the benefits of like the accessibility and cheapness of a mobile home or RV or trailer, but in a more permanent setting. So there was this idea that there was a better way we could be doing things to provide housing in light of the housing crisis that was emerging in the post-war United States. And the idea kind of revolved around just like being smarter about how we manufactured houses. So these two popular houses emerged at this time, the Lustrin House and the Gunnison House. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the Lustrin House? No. Okay, I actually had heard of this one. I'd seen it online before. It's super interesting to me. So the Lustrin House came out in 1948 and it was advertised like with the slogan, like never before in America, a house like this. It was made entirely of steel, like everything. And it had a modest ranch house shape. There was this entrepreneur, his name was Carl Strandland, and he thought it would help solve the severe housing shortages of the post-war era. 
However, just 2,500 of these homes were ever built before the company declared bankruptcy just a couple years later in 1950. The houses were unique though, and they had this distinct kind of atomic era mid-century look to them. And obviously the atomic era was the period that followed the atomic weapons. So all this stuff is kind of interlinked in our psyche is what the future of housing could be. And weirdly, like in a dark way, tied back to that whole idea of those prefab housing communities of the Manhattan Project. So these houses are something like a collectible in the US today. They have metal tile roofs that are still in the original condition from when they were built like 50 years ago. Whoa. Yeah. The houses were prefabricated in porcelain enameled steel components. So you'd have like steel walls, but they'd be covered in like a shiny colored enamel. Whoa. Which is kind of like at our company, we design jewelry. It reminds me of how we design necklaces, right? That's crazy. Yeah, even the interior walls had this and it had a really sleek look and it was all mass produced just like a car and marketed through a car styler dealer system to individual consumers who could erect them on site. The prototype house was a thousand square feet and had two bedrooms. And the government gave Strandlands a $12.5 million loan to get these houses built like ASAP in light of the crisis going on. The new Lustrin homes retailed for $6,000 to $10,000 US dollars at the time, which in today's money is between $70,000 to $120,000. And they could be made in a Columbus, Ohio factory in 400 hours and assembled on site in around 300 hours. Architects who designed the Lustrin home were intent on using every square inch of the space efficiently. So there were like built-ins all throughout the inside, accounting for 20% of the total interior space. The master bedroom had a built-in vanity with large drawers and additional storage space overhead. Bedrooms had sliding doors to eliminate space needed for a door swing. The dining room had a built-in buffet and passed through to the kitchen. The kitchen itself had built-ins with an under-the-sink Thor washing machine. Um, which is just a good name, I think. (laughs) And it also had a special rack you could put inside of it to convert it to a dishwasher, too. Oh, that's cool. Very futuristic. There was also this, like, utility room with a furnace and hot water heater, and there was a ceiling-mounted oil-fired hot air furnace that heated the metal ceiling tiles, which was then supposed to heat the whole house. And the company claimed, the entire ceiling is the source of a smooth, even heat. It's like having the sun for a ceiling. Ooh. Yeah, and that, that one didn't work so well. The floor was just always really cold, and, like, <laughs> the heat didn't distribute super well. But other than that, it was pretty cool. I wonder if it was hot, like, in the summer. Uh, I'll bet if you were to touch the ceiling, it would burn. Yeah, probably. That's made of steel. The whole steel house. Yeah. (laughs) However, the company faced massive financial and logistical issues, and that's why it didn't last so long. Today, 70 Lustrin houses remain, and a lot of them are in the St. Louis area. Out of these, only three have needed any roofing work done in the past 50 years, and that was only because there was a really intense storm that came through. Uh, Most people who live in them today actually love them. The only complaint they have is that for small parts, like the rollers for the doors, it's hard to find replacements because they don't make them anymore. People claim, though, that the houses are largely maintenance-free. You can hose them down and scrub them with a brush if they get dirty, and you can put car paste wax on the walls to make them shine. Whoa. Yeah. So you can, like, actually find online, like, pictures of people in these Lustrin houses, and they're super interesting. The walls have, like, almost... They look like tiles. They're like big square chunks of metal side by side. It's really, I, I think you would actually like oh it. Oh my God. Yeah. Sounds like my, my jam. <laughs> yeah. Around this time, Frank Lloyd Wright was still kind of dabbling in prefab houses and he kind of developed modular techniques as well. Building on his own old concrete block technique and using modular concrete homes called Usonian Automatic. 
And the automatic was just supposed to mean that the owner might participate in the actual construction of the home themselves, laying or making the blocks. In 1953, Marshall Erdman, who built Frank Lloyd Wright's first Unitarian Society meeting house in Madison, Wisconsin, introduced U-Formit prefabricated house kits to the market for around $30,000. And Wright thought that he could work with Erdman to design better prefab kits for half the price. So by 1956, he had plans for three prefab homes to be built exclusively by Erdman. The buyer had to provide, though, the plot of land, the foundation, plumbing fixtures, electrical wiring, drywall, paint, and heating units. Mm. It's kind of a hassle. It's not like the Sears kit where they shipped you everything, even the nails. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to these, there was also the Gunnison home. So the Gunnison homes in the 1950s were steel frames with customizable features. You could choose your own kitchen and bathroom systems. You could select your own finishes like windows and doors. And you could also add on things like porches or garages or something called a portico that I had to look up. Uh, is that like a porch? What is that? It's like a porch cover, I guess. It's oh. like a cover for a porch and it's held up by columns. Oh. Yeah, I've never heard that word before. It's like one of those things that people have that I'm still not sure. Like a, a lanai. Like oh, in yeah. the Golden Girls. I'm like, what is a lanai? I have no idea what that is. Is it a porch? Is it a bathroom? <laughs> like let's let's retire to the lanai oh, and it's like, not a bathroom probably no. I'm like, what are you talking about i don't know why it gives me bathroom vibes <laughs> it does. maybe it's like a cut like a sun porch we'll look that up later. yeah we will look up <laughs> yeah so whatever the case modularity in the 1950s was totally trending and architect and designer george nelson was also super into it so a lot of mid-century design as we think of it kind of replicates this idea of modularity with rectangular shapes and clean lines while previous prefabricated homes had strived to look just like any other house in the neighborhood, Nelson actually loved the idea of modularity and wanted the outsides of modular homes to look different and unique. He wanted them to look like modular homes. He had an experimental house concept, which used affordable plastics and space-age futuristic designs. It had this metal frame of aluminum with hollow rectangular prisms, which were all prefab, pre-made in a you know, factory somewhere. And each unit was a 12-foot modular grid. Everything in it was designed to streamline the assembly and the, like, extension of the house. So you could, like, add more rooms on in the future if you wanted. And there was the aluminum framework and supports, which would replace the costly and longer concrete foundations and be much more lightweight. And if you look up pictures online, this thing's actually pretty cool looking. It looks like if Ikea made houses in outer space. Oh, yeah. cool. But, alas, it never actually existed. It only came about in large model form. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff that we're hearing about around this time, it's really experimental. Like, Frank Lloyd Wright's trying things out. Like, some of these kind of mid-century designers, like, that's interesting, I'm going to dabble. But we have very few, like, successful examples of it being used, and especially not to, like, the context of the kit houses, you know, mm -hmm. that were happening with Sears and Aladdin Company. So now that kind of brings us to the 1960s and futurism is like taking off, right? So the guy, George Nelson, his unique approach to modularity and design kind of played right into the cultural zeitgeist. This was the guy who wanted modular homes to look modular. And this idea was practical and forward thinking and it was futuristic. And that kind of fell in line with the space race that was happening at the time too, which was obviously the Cold War conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union to develop space technology, which lasted from 1955 to 1975. Everything was like very futuristic in people's minds. And by 1964, the British experimental architect collective Arctogram 
uh, or Archigram, they had developed this concept called the plug-in city. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. I feel like you would like this. Ooh. All right. So this is an interchangeable city design where different elements could be plugged into different places. And the designs of these things are pretty wild. Like, if you look at a page of the designs, they look like giant ice cream cones. And then they feature modular residential units that plug into a central infrastructure mega machine. <laughs> yeah. So it's a constantly evolving mega structure that incorporates residences, transportation, and other essential services, all movable by giant cranes in a giant ice cream cone shape. <laughs> sick. Yeah, honestly, it's really sick looking. Sounds um, like some anime shit that I would be into. That's the thing. It's like, I think the thing that's interesting about prefab design is it's encouraging all of these designers to imagine a totally different world that we could all live in. Yeah. And it encompasses all these ideas we talk about a lot of transportation and efficiency and public services and public space. But uh, the giant ice cream cone city never got past design stages. It just existed on paper form, but like in 900 different design documents. Whoa. Yeah. So in 1967, graduate student Mashi Safdie from the McGill University in Canada built something called Habitat 67. And it was for the 1967 Expo in Montreal. So it was 12 stories and it was 354 identical prefab concrete apartments that kind of are arranged in like an M.C. Escher-like kind of way. I don't know how to describe it, but it's a very futuristic looking overall structure where everything's very rectangular and jutting out in different angles and different places and looks like it should not be the way it is. (laughs) Like if you were really bad at Tetris. Oh. Yeah. Uh, That's the best way, I think, to describe it. But because everything was not clicked in place, there were all these light, fresh air, open spaces in between the grid-like maze shapes. So unlike other experimental housing structures, these apartments actually were built and they worked super well and they're still there today. You can buy them in Montreal and they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's pretty cool. So alongside these conceptual cities and individual single family homes, prefab houses in trailer parks were also thriving. Prior to this, there were limitations on what could travel down a highway. So if you had an entire house built offsite, it needed to function similarly to an RV and be eight feet wide at most to fit down the road. However, by the 1950s, states had begun allowing larger loads with special permits, meaning that mobile homes in the 1960s they weren't permanently traveling the road, so they could now be built 10 feet wide or even larger. And this is what really signified a distinction between an RV and a mobile home as we think of it for the first time. Mobile prefabricated homes had begun to be built specifically to accommodate full-time dwelling. And that meant that they could be made as wide as possible with the understanding they weren't moving often, so you didn't need to get like a bunch of permits for them all the time. RVs though maintained their eight foot width to comfortably travel on highways as well as like other types of trailers, like Airstream type things, you know? Mm -hmm. Double wides also became popular at this time, which obviously they're called that because they're two of the original mobile home structures side by side that you could put in place and just kind of leave there in a mobile home park or Mm -hmm. on a plot of land, like Mm -hmm. happened in the rural country around your house. Mm -hmm. So then that kind of brings us to the 1970s. And in the late 1960s, this new architectural style had developed in Japan called uh, metabolism, which focused on flexibility, modularity, and that archigram-like concept of interchangeable units. And by 1970, the metabolists were making an impact at the 1970 Expo. 
The designs were all hypothetical. They were models being built mostly, but a few metabolism structures actually ultimately were created, including the 1972 Nagaken capsule tower, which was designed by Kisha Kurokawa. It's 140 self-contained prefab capsules, and they had their own bathrooms and cabinets and each capsule was designed to be removable and replaceable in case you needed to like switch it out. They're really really small they're just like seven and a half feet by seven feet by 12 feet but they're an interesting idea and they have a really space-aged and futuristic look to them. So in the 1970s in the U.S., Yale professor and architect Paul Rudolph kind of drew on inspiration from the World Expos, going and seeing all these conceptual type building styles. And he created a mass housing project in New Haven, Connecticut, inspired by the ideas of prefabrication. So he based his idea actually on the single wide trailer and mixed it with inspo he drew from that Habitat 67 community, creating something um, called the Oriental Masonic Gardens, which I think is a questionable name. But it consisted of 148 prefabricated units grouped in clusters of four with something he called a utility core in the center. So the ground floor had living spaces and the second floor above had bedrooms. And then you could also like opt to add a third story if you wanted to create more living space. And it was a really interesting thing. It almost looked like if you imagined a really big shipping container community with all the shipping containers like like kind of staggered off of each other building up into the sky oh. like two or three stories and they're not like just on top of each other they're like set back and set off oh. um but instead of the shipping containers it was more like a trailer as you think of like a trailer home oh. but uh people like really hated this project like a lot like everyone hated it first of all i found all this weird documentation online that said it leaked and I, I couldn't figure out what that meant, like leaking from the roof, like when it rained. I don't know. But everyone was like, oh, the leaking. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that seems, I mean, it doesn't sound good. So, okay, I get that. Weird random. But also people just really thought it looked undignified. It wasn't sleek. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't like modern architecture usually is. It just reminded people too much of living in a single wide trailer, but without the fun trailer park energy that a lot of poor people proudly reclaim as an expression of like community. It was the worst parts about being poor, and people really were mad at it. But back in the trailer park, Mobile Homes, they had a new name being thrown around. See, in 1976, it started to called the Manufactured Home instead. Manufactured Homes now had um, unlimited designs and hundreds of manufacturers. And this is because in 1976, HUD had started to take notice that in the U.S., um, people were like living in these mobile homes permanently, and they were more house than car. And they decided that if it was going to be more of a house, them as the housing and urban development department of the federal government probably should pay attention to how they were being made. It had been kind of like wild, wild west, like anything goes with these things. And HUD was like, no, we got to start to inspect these things and make sure they're being built up to some sort of standard of safety. So in 1980, Congress approved changing the term mobile home to manufactured home because manufactured homes would now refer to anything built in a factory that wasn't like an RV that you would just like drive on predominantly. And along with these new regulations came this new name of the manufactured home. And one of the big driving forces for this was tornadoes. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like when you and I were growing up, there was like a weird fascination with tornadoes and we were born in the 1980s, right? Oh yeah, on the news all the time. I mean, I lived through a really scary tornado really? when I was a kid, yeah. What did, uh, can, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it well, it wasn't like, no, it was just like, I grew up in near, outside of Colorado Springs, 
And it was like a weird, usually, you know, Colorado mountains, but there was like, there's also plains and like, we were in like a plain style part and there was a tornado. And I remember me and my mom and my sister in the bathtub being like, ah, whoa. Yeah. I mean, it seems scarier as like, you know, a four year old. I think it was probably still scary. We didn't, you know, I grew up in California. We didn't really have tornadoes, but I remember as a kid, like maybe this was more in the nineties, like movies like Twister came out. Yeah. People were like really fascinated with storm chasing. Mm And I remember turning on the news all the time and seeing that tornadoes had destroyed like trailer parks and mobile home parks. Yeah. And this was kind of one of the reasons Congress started to pay attention to the growing popularity of mobile homes as actual permanent dwellings. So, yeah, we would, like, see all these images of tornadoes destroying mobile home parks. And this was the issue with the transition into considering them more manufactured houses rather than RVs. Like, there was a distinction, and Congress was trying to figure out how to draw it. And this was because a tornado might cause minor damage to what's called a site-built home um, or a stick-built home, which is just how you traditionally build a house, right? But it would do significant damage to a factory-built home, especially an older model or one that wasn't properly secured. 70-mile-per-hour winds could destroy a mobile home in a matter of minutes. So now these new distinctions were being made about these types of dwellings, considering that they were, yeah, less car and more house. And manufactured houses were kind of cemented as being the option for low-cost housing from that point on. And also, weirdly, around this time, I think is when it became synonymous with poverty again. And although the 1980s had this era of excess, you know, the idea of trying to efficiently house people, it kind of seemed tacky and declassé, right? Because everyone in the 80s was all about, like, me, 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 I'm rich, 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 Yeah, right? Reagan. Right. So the 80s was about personal identity and excess and all that other Ayn Rand shit. And American architecture began focusing again on the idea of the single family home being like a status symbol of glory and wealth or whatever. So that doesn't mean that modular housing went out the window. It just means instead it was applied to the individual family dwelling. There were manufactured homes still, the homes in trailer parks, but also we saw suburban home companies like Unity Homes come in with modular building methods that seemed more dignified and elevated than single-wise. And this is where within the prefab community, we really started to see distinctions between modular homes and manufactured homes, even though at their core, both of them are prefabricated homes. It's kind of like a marketing shtick. And these new modular homes were made in a factory with steel frames used as a base. Then the assembled home parts were transported and stuck to the frame on site with a crane. These houses were made similarly to the cement houses of days gone by. And the construction method really set in stone the most popular application of prefab housing like as we think of it today. They were distinctly trying to separate themselves from the trailer parks of the 80s, which were seen as trashy. And once again, fool people into thinking their house actually had not been assembled anywhere off-site, but was just a normal old fancy house like their neighbors. So then by the 1990s, there was this new, like, innovative manufacturing concept called the Clip House. This is really interesting. A clip with a K, because it's hip, obviously. Uh, And it relied on computer design technology to create parts of houses and buildings that kind of snap together like Legos. Huh. Yeah, it's really, it's very, very unique as a concept. And the idea was that the single family residence could adapt to a family's changing needs. So let's say you and your partner move into a house and it's just the two of you. And maybe you just have a one bedroom house. Well, then let's say one of you all of a sudden needs to work from home. And you're like, oh my God, we need another room to use as an office. Well, if you had a clip house, you could just buy a new room and clip it onto your existing house. Whoa. Yeah. And then let's say you and your partner have a kid 
And you're like, where are we going to put the kid? Well, if you had a clip house, you could just buy a new room and clip it onto your house. So this whole idea was that by creating flexible homes, the country could help eliminate urban sprawl. And people wouldn't need to just constantly build more and more and more to accommodate their changing needs. However, the clip house only lasted until 2001. But it is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, it does seem very, like, late 90s. Right? (laughs) So that kind of brings us to the 2000s and the past 20 years and kind of where we think of prefabricated homes today. And the 2000s is really where we started to see the trend of repurposing shipping containers take off. So container housing in general just really started to pick up steam, and this is obviously where you turn discarded shipping containers into homes. And in the year 2000, urban space management created an entire container city in the Trinity Buoy Wharf area of London. And the shape of the containers alone mirrors that of a single wide trailer. And the city kind of looks like that much hated Oriental Masonic gardens designed by Rudolph, only like way cooler. It's really colorful and bright and happy and exciting looking. And it's got these cool like circular windows. It looks really modern. Mm. And in Europe, shipping container homes have really become quite popular in the past 20 years. However, zoning laws in the U.S. make it really tricky for them to be utilized properly as an affordable housing solution here. Yeah, it seems like zoning shit here is just, like, incomprehensible. It really is. Um, Another thing that's kind of come out of prefab trends of the past and is kind of being used today is the micro-apartment. Yeah, I hate the micro-apartment. I think it's totally dystopian, personally. But, you know, it's, it's apartments, which are around 300 square feet, modules kind of assembled onto a steel frame on site and one example of these is called my micro new york but as someone who's lived in a 300 square foot apartment before it was honestly pretty shitty and i hated it yeah oh my gosh like is there a bathroom built in or is there like shared bathroom there's a bathroom um when i lived in my 300 square foot apartment my hallway was so narrow that my fat friends couldn't use my bathroom when they came over and we all decided it was the most fat phobic apartment we'd ever seen oh and my i god yeah i ended up using my oven for storage oh wow yeah it was really not great so i don't know this trend about the micro apartment is uh, to me I, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way i think that we have enough space and we have enough homes that people can live with dignity in houses that are large enough for them to live comfortably. Yeah, and like, not to, I'm like, maybe this is a hot take, but I'm like, America's pretty big. Yeah, we're not a, a tiny, small people. We deserve to have space where we can be nicely and happily. Yeah, and it's so weird to me how people are like, there's not enough space. I'm like, we live in one of the landmass biggest countries in the world. Yeah, and as we know from all the statistics we mentioned at the top of the episode, we have way more housing than we have people already. Yeah, and also, like, you think about countries that are really population dense. We don't have that. We could go more dense. Yeah, we and, have no density here. And we could also make it a livable size. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So, I hate the micro-apartment. I would fight it if it were a person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of gives me like uh, claustrophobia vibe. As someone who has had to spend a lot of time like indoors recovering from stuff, like just being stuck somewhere so small. It's not great. And it also reminds me of the types of transitionary tiny homes we're trying to do for the unhoused here in LA. We're just like, this is not a home. Nobody can live like, with dignity here. Yeah, it seems like a cell. Yeah, it's like a cell, exactly. So another thing that we still have today in the world of prefab housing is manufactured homes. They still exist, and they're still really cost-effective ways to own homes as a low-income person. But the issue you usually have with this, it's a couple of things. A lot of low-income people try to invest in their own housing, 
because it's something that we'll appreciate and value and in our fucked up dystopian like late capitalist hellscape having an asset like a home that appreciates in value if you don't have enough money to save for your retirement that can become your retirement fund like when you get older you can take a reverse mortgage on it which is basically like the bank gives you money based on the value of your house that you can live on until you die or you can sell it and rent something cheaper to live in for the rest of your time. Whatever the case, like a lot of low-income people don't have the option of choosing a home and a retirement and investing in your home can cover both of those bases if you're able to buy it. However, with manufactured homes, they go down in value every year. They don't appreciate in value like a traditional home would. So that's something that's kind of an issue with those. And the other issue you have with a manufactured home is you have to have somewhere to put it. Like you were describing where you're from, there's a lot of land, wide open land that you can put a manufactured home. And that's really cool. But in a lot of places where the housing shortage is really like crunch and go, they're densely populated areas. Yeah, like I don't even know how you would get a, like in LA, from what I understand, you would know this better. It's like, let's say I wanted to put a prefab home or just like build a container house. Like if I bought a plot of land, like I don't think I could get a loan for that based on this. Like don't you have to put cash down for, like it just, it's like way easier to buy an already constructed single home. Yes, exactly. You nailed it. Trying to find land to put something like this on is really, really difficult. If you buy your own land in a densely populated place, odds are the only land available to purchase, like here in LA, it's all hillside plots, which are notoriously difficult and time consuming to build on. And then if you wanna put it in like a mobile home park, even in densely populated places like Los Angeles, Mobile home and trailer park space rent, you have to pay that forever. You never own the space that your home is on if you go that route. And they can be extremely expensive and go up all the time. Do you remember a couple years ago when Betsy Johnson's mobile home was for sale? I was just being like, even Betsy Johnson lived in a mobile home. I think it was in Malibu. It was in Malibu, yeah. She had a mobile home for sale in Malibu and it was so cute and it was so cool. But when you looked at it, the space rental alone on that place was thousands of dollars. And even if you paid your home off and you purchased that thing and it was a relatively cheap house, you would always forever have to pay the thousands of dollars for space rental and it could go up. So then that kind of brings us to the last of the kind of prefab options we have today, which is just like modular homes, which is kind of misleading because I feel like now people use the term modular homes to just like designate any kind of stylish looking prefab home as being different than like a manufactured home or something else. Yeah. But I think that like a modular home, you know, it was kind of made popular by Dwell Magazine in the early 2000s. I remember this magazine. It was like quirky. Yeah, it was a quirky, like, interior, like, architecture magazine. And in 2002, Allison Arieff, I think is her name, the former editor of Dwell, wrote the book Prefab, which profiled modern prefab prototypes. And the next year, Dwell magazine held a modern prefab invitational to create an economical prefab home that could be mass-produced. So prefab was starting to become synonymous with modern design in the early 2000s. And the modular construction approach kind of epitomized that because of how angular it was you know it was very square it was very sleek it was very modern it seemed like a callback to like mid-century even like atomic leaning like that vibe yeah all of the stuff that made it appealing to people in the 1950s and 1960s who were like no let's really make it look different let's make it look futuristic that's kind of what the dwell era of prefab brought to the table as well totally it was like the y2k version of the 50s and 60s yes which makes sense because you know, trend cycles are 20 years, right? So when we 
were living in the early, early 2000s, around 2001, 2002, 2003. I remember we were all obsessed with the 80s. But of course, the 80s, everything aesthetically referenced the 60s. Yeah. So it made sense that that was kind of the geometric, angular, was kind of the thing. Like, my favorite earrings I wore in the year, like, 2002, were these giant, like, differently sized triangle plastic earrings. Oh, of course. Yeah, right? That's, like, what you would I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they had this challenge where they were like, all right, we're going to make affordable housing. It's going to be modern. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. But the main issue that all of these participants in the Dwell Magazine Challenge ran into is that it turns out prefab housing just isn't necessarily that much cheaper than building a typical house. Of course. Yeah, currently prefab homes cost around $175 to $250 per square foot to make. And new regular homes being built, they cost between $100 and $200 per square foot to make. (laughs) Yeah, some prefab houses can be up to 40% cheaper, like manufactured houses, but usually they're not, and that's a big barrier. In fact, many upscale modular house spreads Prices are way bigger than site-built counterparts. And companies that are doing it right have found ways to cut down costs dramatically. There's this one company owned by architect Rocchio Romero. They're able to sell housing kits that range from $23,000 to $45,000 made from interlocking panels. And these kits are pretty easy to use and user-friendly. They even come with like a video explaining how to put the house together. But a lot of prefab houses in general face financing challenges, which you kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah, like you have to have a lot down in the beginning. Like like you have to put down 50K, you know, buy the whole kit. Let's say it's 50K. So you have to have 50K on hand, whereas you could put 3.5% down on a single family home and only pay 15,000. Exactly. It's often way easier to get a mortgage on a $300,000 house with a 3.5% FHA loan down payment of $10,500 than it is to spend $50,000 out of pocket on a prefab house kit. Then on top of that, you have to buy the house kit. You also out of pocket usually need to pay for the land, foundation, and labor for it to be built. Today's modular houses can't be built on like your own like in the style of the original Sears or Aladdin kit houses, right? Like, you don't remember how they were like, all you need is a hammer, all you need is a screw. They're just not built like that anymore. And a lot of that is because they have to comply with like local code. They can't be that simple to just plop up. You actually would need a background in construction and probably to own your own 80 foot crane to do it yourself. Oh my God. Which is obviously a major obstacle. Add to that dealing with inspections and building codes, permits for things like driveways and well drilling and septic systems, and you begin to see why it's such a headache and not really realistic for the average person to pursue this route, especially if they don't have a lot of money up front. In 2006, IKEA threw their hat in the ring of prefab homes by offering the bow clock to the European market, and they have already sold thousands. However, in the US, we still struggle with building code regulations like the issues with the shipping container homes. Different states, counties, and cities have different requirements, which are often more difficult to build than if you were just doing a manufactured home to the HUD code restrictions. So now one of the major differences we see is that manufactured homes, they just have to adhere to like a federal HUD uh, regulation or whatever to make sure it's safe. But if you go the modular route, those instead, those are subjected to local codes. So some places you live, it might be totally chill. Other places you live, it might be near impossible. And where we live in LA, where there's a major issue with the housing shortage, it's really, really difficult to get those kinds of things past code. And there are companies that do it, and they're usually local. Like if you were going to do a modular home, you'd want to choose a local modular home company because they're super familiar with the codes and the permits and everything you need. 
but it's still a cost barrier to enter because of that whole thing you were talking about earlier where you'd have to buy the land yourself. It's just not very achievable the way we would want it to be achievable here. In Japan, though, um, Toyota has started building modular homes with efficient production, creating factory-made houses that are durable and sturdy enough even to withstand Japanese earthquakes. And Builder C Prefab is an opportunity, too, for more green production due to assembly line efficiencies cutting down on material waste, and also the opportunity to integrate eco-friendly materials like solar panels and bamboo floors in bulk. There's this one developer, Mark A. Bovet, who attempted to streamline prefab production in Canada with a new platform called Bone Structure, which is like a steel-based construction system that's robotically manufactured, cut and shipped to the building site, then assembled just with screws and a drill. It's not a full prefab house kit, but it's like a structure on which simple designs can be built. And it's made mostly with recycled steel and foam insulation that can reduce energy costs up to 90% compared to a traditionally constructed home. It also meets all these environmental certifications like LEED, which is like the leadership in energy and env environmental design. And it's also been used in hundreds of homes, mainly across Canada. It's super fast compared to traditional building and it's cool. And the company is trying to market itself also here in California for like wildfire ravaged areas mm. when you have to rebuild entire communities fast. However, again, that's not an all-in-one thing. That's just a component of a house and you still have to do a lot of the work. So it just kind of seems to me like prefab housing is just an opportunity we keep missing, you know? Yeah, because it's like, wow, you can make all these houses very quickly and efficiently and like look cool. Like if you made them like the uh, atomic style houses or like the Frank Lloyd Wright houses, like all of them could look so cool and could be built so quickly. Right. We see all these beautiful prefab houses pop up in places like England and Germany and Sweden and Japan and Canada. But it just seems like we can never get it together here in the U.S., even as we see labor shortages in construction and we see that we're in the middle of a housing crisis and we see all these environmental issues. We run into issues with purchasing land, which is more complicated in the U.S. than other places due to zoning laws, restrictive covenants, and hookup regulations. You also often need flat plots of land to build on, which are hard to find in places like Los Angeles, where the main impact of the housing crisis is like really seen our land is hillside and that means to build on top of it you need to develop this thing called an architectural foundation which is a custom engineered architectural like structure that has like pylons driving down into the earth and retaining walls it's a super gnarly thing to have made to make sure your house is safe on top of it and it's really really expensive and it usually costs a hundred thousand dollars on the cheap end to build an architectural foundation and typically you can't get funding or financing for any of that. You wow. have to pay that out of pocket. So financing in general for prefab homes is also difficult to acquire. Like even if you did the work of paying for the land out of pocket, paying for your architectural slab foundation out of pocket, like it's very difficult to get financing to build a prefab or modular home compared to other types of homes, even if you went to like a lender that specifically deals with building loans. Like even that, they, they tack on like extra percentage points. It's not just like a really understood or easily taken on kind of thing. So when I set out potentially to buy a home one day years ago, I looked into this really cool modular home builder here in LA. They're called Proto Homes and I'm like obsessed with them, right? They're gorgeous and they're these smart homes with like a smart core technology and they're supposed to cost way less per square foot than traditional homes. They advertised even at the time having low prices on their website, like 100, I think it was $150 per square foot, which was pretty cheap for LA. And I remember thinking like, wow, maybe this is for me. 
so I reached out to them and told them details about my life and my budget and what I was looking for. And they were really nice, but they were the ones that informed me, yeah, I would need to purchase flat land out of pocket, which in LA is hundreds of thousands of dollars just to buy a flat plot of land here alone, or hire an architect to build me that special architectural slab on the more affordable hillside lot, which is also hundreds of thousands of dollars, like just out of pocket I'd have to pay. And then when buying the land, there was also a good chance that soil tests would reveal I couldn't even build anything on it in the first place. Now the pricing per square foot is currently removed from their website and I can see why. It's something low income people get excited about, but the barriers for entry make it extremely unobtainable unless you have wealth. Even if I bought a $500 structure on Alibaba, I'd have to have the land to put it on and I'd have to make sure however it was attached to that land was up to code, which might be an impossible task depending on where you live. Because of this, I then set my sights next to building a shipping container in the desert only to learn that building codes there meant that I would need to buy land with a house already on it, then modify that house because it was pretty impossible to get permits for a new construction to build my own modular home there just on its own. Or like you were talking about, how your friend had to have special situations for their water or power. It's really, really complicated to do these things. And at the end of the day, it was, like Kenna mentioned earlier, just cheaper for me as a low-income person to go in with a few other people to buy an already built duplex than it would have been for me to build a supposedly cheap prefab home. And the ultimate irony is that my half of the duplex, my little back house, itself was probably a cheap kit house when it was first built in the early 1900s. And in the year 2019, I paid $400,000 for it. Oh my God. <laughs> While prefab housing is supposed to serve low-income communities who struggle to find consistent affordable housing in the world today, the barriers in place to build means that it's something that only the rich can usually afford to do, which is kind of ironic and defeats the point. The current boom for prefab housing in California kind of exemplifies this issue. Here, homeowners can now add accessory dwelling units to their backyards, and prefab manufacturers are jumping in to make this as cost-effective as possible. However, the result is that people who were already able to afford their own homes are now able to easily build another, which just grants them a path towards landlordship in their own backyard. And it creates another barrier for low-income people to achieve stable permanent housing. I think in order for prefab housing to actually do what it's supposed to do, the government needs to step in and bridge the gap between the consumer and these prefab housing providers, offering programs through which potential buyers can finance buying land and building foundations for these houses to go on. Without something in place that removes the barriers for land and foundation acquisition in major urban hubs close to jobs and where people live, prefab houses will always be limited to what sectors they can actually serve. Dwell Magazine may have made them hip, but now someone has to come in and make them actually accessible in cities where the housing crunch hits the hardest. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think, Kenna? Uh, I just, I would totally be down to buy a cute prefab house and just build it on the land, but uh, if I could get, like, the same loan as I could for a single-family house. I just don't understand. Okay, so you get a 3.5% down for a single-family house or, like, a duplex, but if I wanted a condo, which would probably fit my needs better, um, I would have to put 20% down. And a prefab, which would be way cheaper, um, I'd have to put like $150,000 down. Right. You know, instead of fifteen dollars for a single house. It's really interesting because I know that like the FHA loans were put in place to try to encourage low-income people to buy houses. But, you know, we do. We have all these other options that would be potentially more cost-effective. Um, you know, something that actually helps solve like housing issues. And it just seems like people don't want to catch up with them. Like, 
I think the more insidious fear I have is that people who own land in cities like Los Angeles benefit from there being housing scarcity because it drives up the value of their land and their holdings. And they would rather force housing scarcity to remain than build more housing because then it would drive the value of their own house down. I believe that is totally, it's not only like landowners, it is homeowners. Because like you said, owning a home in America is like one of the only ways you can build wealth. Like if you think about it, like that's your retirement, you are invested in that going up in value because if it goes up in value higher than, for example, your 401k or your, you know, just saving in the bank, whatever that interest rate is, you are banking on that going up in value. It's only going to go up in value, you know, basic economics, if there is scarcity in the market. If there's a bunch of houses and everyone can afford to buy houses, do you think your property value is going to go up? Probably not. Right. And So I, you are invested in a, if you own a home, you actually benefit from there being a housing shortage because that means your house is worth more because over time there's less and less houses. There's the same amount of people. Right. Yeah. I think that's the major issue. I think it's like whenever you look at our country and you're like, there's a better way to do this. Why aren't we doing it the better and easier way? There's always an answer, and the answer is that uh, it's not good for rich people. No, and it's not good, or people who happen to have generational wealth already. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, are also, like, I think about people who are boomers, Gen X, like, they're like, we bought our house, it's cheap, why Why do I care about anyone else getting house? Like, I have a house, like, why can't people just get houses? Like, they don't understand, and that's when I keep thinking about the gerontocracy, like, not where it's just like people who run the government and who actually are in charge of things like bureaucracy and stuff they have no clue what it's like for people who are younger yeah yeah not for the whole but like that's part of it where it's just like like people are just like i don't i don't understand why don't you just go and get a house it's like well i have to have this much money say you know like let's say minimum fifteen thousand dollars if your rent, like the majority of people, is more than 30% of the income, it is very difficult to save that amount of money for a house, even if you would pay more in your rent than you would on a mortgage. Oh, yeah. It took me five years of saving money to be able to afford my down payment. And I had to do a creative buy where I bought the duplex with multiple people so that I could have one unit like a condo because I could only afford the 3.5% down payment and I couldn't afford the condo down payment, but I only really needed a condo, not a whole house. And I had to pick up as much side work as I possibly could to even be able to save for that in a five-year period. Yeah, like I think about me, like so much of my savings at first, uh, Great Recession, you know, I couldn't save money for years because it was just like I was living hand to mouth because there were no fucking jobs. And then, you know, once... You know, I've had experience where I've lost my savings a couple times due to like um, illness, like, you know, had a business partner like screw me over, like just stuff like that, where it's just like you can have just have life things just like completely erase any savings. Yeah. Or like especially with like healthcare stuff like that stuff is expensive and wild. It's pretty major. And it's just it's just such a. I think it's just so interesting how there's such a disconnect where these companies come out and these people are like, look, we made this really affordable housing. And you're like, cool, only rich people can build it though because you haven't done anything to make land more affordable. You haven't done anything to make foundations more affordable. Like, And, and I just feel like it's a lot of well-off 
kind of design oriented people patting themselves on the back going yes prefab housing look at it it's beautiful and then when you ask well why why don't i see it more why don't i see shipping container homes around los angeles you know technically they're legal here it is legal to put them on something here but because the the person who can afford to build the hillside plot and build the fancy foundation off of it they can also afford to just build whatever the fuck house they want yeah because they pro- they already have them if you have a hundred thousand dollars to just buy a plot of land you're going to use that to just get something nicer. Yeah. And it's like, also like here, it's more advantageous for big companies to buy up houses and rent them out for an exorbitant rate, like for as much as you possibly can, because people need a place to live. Like if you're like, I have a choice of living in my car or living in an expensive apartment, you're going to pay whatever you can afford and just try to get by like I mm-hmm. most people the first thing you spend your money on is your rent or your mortgage yeah first like, housing always comes first yeah like I've always paid my rent and then sometimes I'm like well got 50 bucks for food right you no know? it's totally true they know that they can get away with it because people are in a tight spot I feel like the thing about prefab housing is that For me, it's like so easy to get excited about and that's what makes it more heartbreaking to realize how inaccessible it actually is. It's like just the bureaucracy of it and not only the bureaucracy, but there's also this mindset of like, well, why can't you make this work? Like we have this weird American like magical thinking where if if you don't have a house, if you don't have the American dream there's something fucked up and wrong with you and it's just like what like yeah if some like it's like almost this thing like if something bad happens to you um it's your fault if you don't have housing it's your fault it's not systemic things you know it's not the way that the the housing market is set up if you have if you get in a car accident it's not that the the system was messed up you know the driving system even though you should take responsibility for driving but i mean like we were talking about how like we have way more accidents here because of the way the roads are set up right like or interesting if like you don't have housing it's like well why didn't you you shouldn't have had your avocado toast not because the housing structure is uh set up in a way to benefit rich people and corporations and it's exponentially more expensive now for people than it was you know in the 80s or 70s or 60s or 50s and it's just like and you know it it, even though we have like a huge housing crisis people are just like well we'll figure out a way to like it's almost like a weird I, i still will just stand by it's like a weird way of punishing people or being like you or, like, you can't give people free houses. You can't give them breaks on prefab housing because what's their incentive to work? Or, like, I worked really hard. Like, right. Why Why do these people get a free house and I don't? And my answer is everyone should. Yeah. I want, actually, the weird ice cream cone city. Yeah. I want cool. that. And then you get your – and then if you want to change ice cream cone cities, you take your house with you. A giant crane comes and picks it up <laughs> and takes it out, like, Matrix style, but it's not a, a pod of you and your goo being jacked into the Matrix so that the robots can steal your energy to make batteries. No, it's your little house, and it's cute and happy, and the crane comes and is like, oh, you want to move to a new cone city? Come on. And then it grabs it, and it moves along, and it puts you in your new cone city. Yeah, and I just think it's cool and, like – I don't, I think that, like, everybody, like, wants to live in a place that looks cool. Yeah, for sure. I think, and, like, feels cool and is, like, has 
access to open spaces and is like really like cute and functional. I think the problem is that, I don't know, it seems like a lot of people don't want equal access to that. They want to kind of hoard, like, you know, like I think about like wealthy people can just live in gated communities and not have to think about anyone else. So like, I have my own little street. I'm in my own little place and I don't have to deal with the commoners. Yes. Like there is this like pervasive mindset of like, if we have to deal with other people, it is like gross and weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, or like even like using public transportation. Ooh, gross, weird. Like, Yeah, there's that Maria Bamford joke about when she moved to LA from New York and um, one of her New York friends called her and she was like, oh no, one of her LA friends called her and she was like, where are you? And she's like, I'm on the bus. And her friend was like, oh, are you okay? Do you need me to come pick you up? Where are you? Get off right now. I'll come get you. <laughs> exactly. And she's it's... like, I take the bus all the time. Yeah. And we've set up these systems. And I think from a very long time ago, and we don't realize that they were kind of like conscious choices in the past rather than just some natural law of existence. Like, oh, you must drive a car. You must yeah. live in a house with a backyard and this, because that's the way that God created it. And that's the way, that's the natural law of the inference. Like, no, it's not. Like, yeah. you know, like, even you think about like, stuff we, uh, which we should do an episode on, on recycling. Oh, yeah. And trash. That'd be a good episode. Like, you think it's just like, oh, well, there's always just been trash around. Like, it's just one of those problems that we're always going to have to deal with. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was created. Like, a couple corporations that made this decision a long time ago. Like, or just so many things that are like, you know, we think of like, oh, well, it's just so hard to build housing. We don't know. There's no way we could build this housing problem because just built into the existence, just like death is a problem of life. Just like there will always be suffering. There will always, it will always just be hard to house people. It's like, no. No, it's not. In other places, they don't deal with this issue the way we do. I think like, okay, so like obviously like end goal is like, housing should just be a human right everyone should just get free housing end end goal everyone should get free everything no money should exist but mansions you know, for everybody mansions for everybody but in the meantime you're like think about how much easier everyone you know their life would be if it was easy for them to if they're like oh there's no houses i can afford okay i'm just gonna buy this plot of land here in town and the government's gonna help me build the foundation on it and then um i'm just gonna buy my prefab house kit and plop it up yeah and it's like you can get hillside lots here for 7500 bucks they're not expensive but they're zoned weird like some of them i was looking at the other day and it's like okay for this one zoning the land has to be 5000 square feet for you to build one zo- one house on it and then you look and you're like well this plot of land is 4986 square feet which is why it's only 7500 dollars to buy cuz you can't build anything on it because it's 14 square feet short you know if you look at all these things and you're like what if like we if you wanted to have this, like, stupid American culture, like, do it yourself, take it on, ah, you could even facilitate that just by making it so that, that people could actually build if they wanted to in an easier way in the most densely populated areas where, you know, there's not just free land all around for everybody to purchase that's flat and easy to build on. Like, you could do just the the bare minimum to make it so that people could take these projects on themselves and build their prefab houses just, like, whoever had my house in 1912 probably ordered from a kit and built it themselves. Yeah. And that's the, the thing where it's just like, yeah, like why it's almost like, why can't you just build a house on a plot of land? Like, and it's not saying like, 
I definitely think that there should be safety. Codes. Yeah, the codes are good. Like I like the codes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you don't want to live in a place that's going to catch on fire. Right, but things like you can't build a, a house on a plot of land that's less than 5,000 square feet. Like, that's just... You don't need a 5,000 square foot house. You don't. Or like, oh... Um, there's no financing options available for you to build your your foundation on a hill like why yeah why well I mean I'm sure probably benefit I'm sure if we like did enough digging there was like this one lobbyist blah 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 like or like yeah um you think like when someone does like someone should do like an entire podcast of like the history of like zoning laws which yeah I, don't, I mean I don't know but like I'm sure there's some stupid fucking reason like it's like the bureaucracy of this is like I'm it really to me is just it's meant for um there not to be upward mobility. It's yeah. meant it's it 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 is to me it's like even though it seems like conspiratorial, like it's like there's there's reasons why. I mean this the things are zoned the way that probably is like I, I even think of that stupid movie Chinatown. Well, we did a whole episode on R one zoning. Yeah. Yeah, and how our one oh, zoning. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, it's like designed so that you can't build a lot. Obviously now in California we have this like addendum where if you have R1 zoning, um, you can build an accessory dwelling unit, you can build a second yeah. unit. But like we talked about in this episode, that doesn't actually help people get into stable long-term housing. It just creates another opportunity for landowners to become petty landlords, which Ugh. doesn't help. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah, and I feel like, you know recently you know that there's like a adu like accessory dwelling unit law in los angeles so people can build units if they have extra space in their backyard and you know that's one small step to you know if you need extra create extra housing but it doesn't really go far enough and i feel like if you just went further to be like you can build on a plot of land in la as long as it's structurally sound and we and if it's not we will help finance you to make it structurally sound and just make like uh, what would i mean just stupid little things like maybe uh i don't know if you could do this locally but like allow fa you know like lower loan rates for condos lower lower down payments for down payments for condos apartments prefab housing like Mm -hmm. Financing for prefab housing, yeah, all of these different things would be even within our current system of capitalism, which is flawed and fucked up. It's like these would be easy changes to make huge differences. I do. I just think it's interesting when people are like, "Why hasn't prefab housing taken off?" Yeah, and then I, you're like, "Here are all the barriers for entry." Yeah, because like in my mind, like as a millennial, you're just like, "Oh, like maybe one day, like I can't afford a house ever, but maybe, like you said, like." I could just get a little tiny home. No. <laughs> yeah, you can't put a tiny home anywhere in LA either. <laughs> so hard. Well, anyway, so that's our episode on prefab housing. What are our key takeaways? Um, ice cream uh, house complex. Yes, ice cream cone utopia good. Um, uh, expensive foundation bad. Yeah, and I want I want um, the steel house, the atomic steel house. Oh, yeah, lustrin house very good. Yeah. Scrub down house, and that's it. Steal ice cream cone village. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support us further, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash scared. And for a mere $2 a month, you can listen to bonus content. You can ask us questions, which we may or may not answer on air or um, in a bonus app or personal message. 
Um, but if you don't want to do that, that is fine. We are so glad you're listening to us on Maine. Uh, thank you again.